Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, is antitrust the right tool for the problem? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we're building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or for those who might need to get up to speed quickly on a particular issue. So today we're going to talk about the current demands from both left and right for antitrust investigation and enforcement against large companies, particularly some large tech companies. And I'm joined again today by our senior research fellow, Bartlett Clellan. Bartlett, it's great to have you back in the studio today. And always happy to be here. And I know that antitrust is um, one of your favorite topics. Or something like that. <laughs> so, but, you know, it, it, it's it's been a while since antitrust was really much of a consideration, but all of a sudden now now it's back because you have both a progressive left-leaning administration that seems to want to just vigorously pursue antitrust, and then you also have some sort of populist voices on the right who have decided that uh, market power is a dangerous thing too. It, But this is weird because it's usually historically been left-leaning people who saw antitrust as a, you know, as a tool for attacking what they saw as businesses that were too big and were too powerful. And so they wanted to break up big companies really just because they're big. Uh, and I think, you know, because they, they fear that, you know, market power is a threat to government power, which is their favorite form of power. And so this is why a lot of times folks on the left are opposed to mergers and things like that, just because they just seem to be opposed to bigness. But today... We actually hear from some voices on the right also complaining about companies being too big and too powerful, particularly tech companies, social media companies, um, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted to talk today about this whole idea of antitrust. Is it the right tool for the problem? Is there ever <laughs> an application for antitrust? And so how we should think about all of this. So I, I, I think, well, there's a whole lot in there to, mm-hmm. to discuss and some things that are not uh, the point of today's conversation. But, for example, uh, we, we do tend to use uh, left and I'll, uh, liberal, although I don't particularly mm-hmm. enjoy that word, but uh, and thinking of antitrust. And we tend to think of conservatives, although that word doesn't particularly fit, or uh, the right as being opposed to antitrust. Uh, but that all is about then uh, free markets. Right. That's that's the underlying argument that would be there are maybe individual rights. Um, and so I think there's a great query to say, and we'll get to this maybe a little bit later, a little bit in the philosophy here. Mm. But, you know, are, are those are the parties, uh, however you title them, still aligned with that principle or not? And it seems the answer is, at least for on the fringes, no, the fringes are more yeah. like each other than the than the middle. Mm. Uh, but the other the other uh, question you raised is, uh, is there ever a reason to to use antitrust? And. I, I think the analogy I like, and I, I think it's apt, is to think of antitrust as a, I use the word mall, because that's a large uh, war hammer, so to speak. But mm-hmm. just think of it as a hammer. Yeah. There are there are uses for a hammer sometimes, but you don't just go around banging on everything uh, because there it, it somehow isn't working right. You don't take right. a hammer to your television set, for example. So right. even in the situation where you might thump something, you still don't hammer it. And I think... Uh, 
in some real way, what is getting lost today is a notion of any kind of finesse, any kind of uh, surgical strike, assuming you can identify a problem that could be solved in the first place. Let's assume we did that already. Then what is the right tool? So I think talking about whether it's right or when it's right is apt. and, And I will just put my skepticism on the table and say, I don't think it's very often yeah. to be used. You know, you make a really interesting uh, illustration there. You, you, I mean, you you alluded to the, the idea, like, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's right. And it does seem like we have a lot of this going on right now. They have antitrust power, enforcement power, and so now everything looks like too big, too much market power. That's right. Whereas, as I think we're going to talk about in a few minutes, antitrust is probably not the right so the right tool to use for whatever problem people are trying to address. Well, let's talk about just just the idea of antitrust in general. Um, and and I think that I'm correct in saying that it, the whole idea of antitrust law was basically a, a creation of the progressive era, right? It was. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and several major cases, uh, uh, court cases along the way, kind of, um, and laws, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the three different laws that passed uh, long ago uh, that certainly targeted uh, railroads and oil and gas mm-hmm. are kind of the probably the most well, you, So you had to break areas. up a standard oil. That's right. At, and, and, and you had and, the and trust that was a huge, That's right. And, and that right. was a huge core case that laid mm-hmm. out some of trust. So, so there's been common law and then uh, several laws. Uh, mm-hmm. The Sherman Act, people are familiar with that. Clayton Act, people familiar with these names um, that were passed. But all during the progressive era yeah. and all infused with the notion and, and, and the uh, philosophy. Um, or the the push of the progressive era, specifically the idea that the technocrats in charge of government during the progressive era knew better how capital should be allocated, how markets should work, than the actual businesses and the actual players in the market themselves. That's right. That, that's always been, mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say always, in its founding. Yeah, that was the that was the belief to. I guess, boil it down to its most simple form. Some organization, some company mm-hmm. had gotten too large um, in somebody's estimation for what it was they were supposed to be doing um, or, or in that case, and, and sometimes not doing. There are, there are to, to mention quickly, there are terms people probably have heard, uh, like tying, if you followed the Microsoft case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're uh, collaborating with others. Uh, other companies to try to fix a price. Right. Uh, people have probably heard of these. Uh, this notion of, hey, how are all the gas stations on the corner? They all have the same price. Well, if they all got in a room and colluded yeah. uh, to come up with that price and then held that price, that that's illegal under antitrust law. Yeah. If you happen to observe it and you're meeting the market, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's a different story. But yeah. you, people probably have thrown some of this stuff around. Mm-hmm. And what that all is is antitrust. Yeah. And and you and I are, are pretty radical proponents of free markets, but I think even we would agree. I mean, even Adam Smith said that, you know, I, I won't get the quote right, but Adam Smith even said that there's never a time that four or five businessmen don't get together that they that they're not tempted to collude. That's right. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you know. Yes, yes. And so, you know, even even as radical proponents of, of free markets, we would still argue, no, you you don't want price fixing. You don't want real collusion. You don't want real price fixing and things like that. Right. You don't want things to look like fraud. I mean, right, that's, exactly. that's essentially a form of fraud on the consumer. Right. right yeah. Exactly. And you know that sort of goes to this whole idea, and it's a good transition to we want to spend some time talking about this idea of consumer welfare. Right. Because, as we said, in the progressive era, um, the the driver behind antitrust was this idea that that appointed intellectual government technocrats 
were smarter and knew better how to run the economy than the actual real-life decisions that are made by producers and consumers in the marketplace. But in, in recent decades, that's really changed because of some very influential work that was done on the idea of the consumer welfare standard. And that the ultimate goal, in fact, we did a policy basics podcast on this earlier this year called Why Consumer Welfare Should Always Come First. And the idea here is that very often consumer welfare is enhanced by scale, by companies having big enough scale to do things. But it doesn't take a lot of scale to run a donut shop, but it takes a lot of scale to run a broadband network, you know, and uh, you can't, you know, we. I, I, I still remain amazed at Amazon. I mean, I've literally had the experience of ordering something from Amazon in the morning and having it delivered that same day. And as you know, I don't live in an urban area. I live out in the country. That's right. Okay. You can't achieve that level of customer service without scale, you know? So the whole idea of the consumer welfare standard, I'll, I'll express it uh, my way, and then I'll ask you to sort of express it in a, in a more technical <laughs> policy way, right? But the whole idea of the consumer welfare standard is that the ultimate goal is benefits to consumers. And if a if a company is able to deliver more benefits to consumers because they've achieved scale, then that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And that the only time we would actually step in and say that a company is misbehaving is if there's pretty clear evidence that they are harming consumers with their market power and their scale. That's right. And, 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 and frankly, just a quick side note, uh, I'm not even sure what that harming to consumers would look like, mm. uh, because that, again, is going to be a uh, – in the courts, I could imagine that. Uh, in legislation, I have a hard time understanding how they'd ever get to the facts or understanding what that mm. harm would be. So I'm always skeptical of legislative action in this area, because frankly, it's just not – it never solves the problem because it's right. way late, right. number one. And then number two, they're not triers of fact. They're not finders of fact. They're, they're lawmakers, not, not law interpreters. And so mm. it's completely misapplied to go to the legislative. But um, you, you, this whole notion of consumer welfare, it, to me, is the only rational place to go with mm. antitrust. I, I don't understand. You, you either sit in a place where you just say there is a, there is a person or maybe a group of three, maybe we get to five people if you get really crazy, who can arbitrarily decide how to create and then manage a marketplace going forward. Or you believe in a free market. And in a free market, it's totally messy. We all get that. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are bubbles that happen. There are other kind of distortions along the way. But we believe in the long run, not, in the, not, the, sna not the snapshot. We believe in the motion right. picture, right? right? And so as you watch the motion picture play out, most of those problems get resolved. Unless government gets involved, and this is this is why people glibly say, and frankly, it's almost true to a fault, that the only time you really end up with monopolies is when the government has somehow been involved or sponsored them right. in the first place. Exactly, it, because that's how that that situation goes on for a long time. But more importantly, to me, on the consumer welfare side, this is a fundamental piece, I think, of understanding at least this country. And this is why it burns me up when we compare it to Europe. Europe. I mean, pick any country. European history is completely different than U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Pick legal history. It's completely, not completely, it is largely different than ours. Obviously, we take some of our history from the British common law approach, and we took some of those laws, frankly, dating all the way back to Anglo-Saxon times. But, but for the most part, most of Europe operates completely differently, uh, has completely different history, completely different understanding of, of the marketplace, um, similar to ours, but not the same. And the one thing that is profoundly different 
in European history versus our history is this notion of sovereignty or where indiv- where power rests. Mm-hmm. So forget even God-given power, sovereignty, mm-hmm. used to be imbued in the monarch um, and then used to rule the country. Hence, you'd have, in fact, we're probably going to see it when the queen passes away. Uh, there will be this notion of, of mourning about the country, not just about the monarch, because mm-hmm. it, uh, that's a, a notion that's bound. What we said in this country is the notion of America is bound in each one of us. And you see that in the Tenth Amendment, uh, powers are reserved to the states or to the people. That's that notion. It seems to me that if you really are being grounded in who we are and in constitutional law, you look at that and you say, huh, well, how would antitrust work? Well, antitrust can then only work if the people have the power, if the people are then somehow disenfranchised, then the people are the ones who would write that, mm-hmm. write that wrong. Not oh, there's a company and it's so big we have to break it up. That's not the point. The point is not measuring bigness. The point is, are the individuals somehow disenfranchised? And and the people would write that wrong (laughs) primarily through the decisions they make in the marketplace, right? That's right, which leaves just one situation that I can imagine, which is there is absolutely no substitute or or comparable product Mm -hmm. available. So you'll get in these absurd, I think, absurd conversations around technology right now. People say, well... You can't just ask people to leave Facebook. Well, I can ask people to leave Facebook. If you yeah. don't like Facebook, leave Facebook. Right. If you don't like Twitter, leave Twitter. Right. And then people say, oh, but you know, they like Facebook. Well, if they like Facebook, then right. stay on Facebook. If, if they like Facebook, then apparently <laughs> it's delivering to them consumer welfare. It, 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 exactly. <laughs> consumer value, right. And, and so I don't understand, uh, you know, frankly, 90% of the conversations, 95% of the conversations I get into around technology specifically or social media even more particularly yeah. around antitrust because you end up chasing your tail and yeah. the only argument that people keep going back to is well you know what they're just so big right right and and to your point earlier i think we should spend some more time on this too big in whose opinion it's completely arbitrary and the nice thing about the consumer welfare standard and you and I had a conversation about this sort of in preparation for this podcast, and, and I'd really never thought about it this way before. But at least the consumer welfare standard has the potential of being demonstrated empirically, right? I mean, so if, if you had a company with a lot of market power, they bought up a competitor, right? And then six months later, the price for the exact same service was jacked up three or four times as high. That's pretty good illustration of the fact that consumers were harmed by that one company gobbling up its only competitor, right? That's an empirical thing you could point to on a chart. The thing is it never happens, but it at least would be empirical. And so your point was that the, the only non-arbitrary standard is the consumer welfare standard. Anything else is just a matter of opinion. And, and your opinion is going to be different than mine. I mean, I mean, who decides how many competitors there should be in a marketplace? Who decides how many supermarkets there should be within within a city limits, right? Who decides how many donut shops there should be? Who decides how many telephone companies there should be, right? It, it just becomes completely arbitrary unless you're tied to some demonstration of our consumers being harmed or our consumers being helped by the scale of this company. And in fact, one option, and I know it's implied, one option you left off your list is who decides if there should be any competition in the marketplace. Right, right. If you, because we're in the land of make-believe, right, right with right. most of these arguments. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to my land of make-believe. If they're going to make-believe that there is such thing as too big, let's go to my land. In my land, there's a company that perfectly matches what consumers want. Consumers want for nothing in that product right. space or right. that service space. 
they they receive everything they need and 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 more, and the company is perfectly profitable and, and moves along and hires a bunch of people. Et yeah. Well, why should we have competition? Why in the world? Should there be competition if that is where we are? If everyone's 100% happy with the situation. That's right. right. And then if they're not, wouldn't the next thing be, well, then we should have competition. But you'd have to have some understanding that there would become a market for that competition. And you'd also, to me, have to show that that competition couldn't organically grow. In other words, if there was a desire to have a competitor, Number one, the logic is that there must be a big enough group that could support a competitor. Yeah. Then number two, is there something that's stopping that competitor from rising? And this is, and again, this is where you get into these absurd conversations. Mm. If barriers to entry in the tech space, pretty small. So what they go to is, well, but you know, they already sell a whole lot of advertising. Okay, sure. But a better rate, a better service. I mean, we go back to this yeah. basic market economics, right? Yeah. This is yeah. not rocket science. Right. Any of those things. Any of those uh, challenges to an incumbent can knock that incumbent right off uh, their perch. And we can think of a ton in the tech space. But frankly, we've seen a ton in the not tech space. I think of Sears. I think of Kmart. Yeah. There are, they, they got knocked off the space. Why? Because they weren't, so it doesn't matter what the details are. Yeah. The bottom right. line is they weren't serving the consumer in a way that a consumer was willing to walk in and spend dollars with them. You're getting... The transition's all perfect in this podcast, by the way. That's because, my role here. Because you were just you were just <laughs> talking about competitors, and and we want to make this point that we're talking about consumer welfare, not competitor welfare. Okay, you're supposed to try to put your competitors out of business. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. And I think a lot of times people are confused about this because we'll say we'll say that you know this company scale is not harming anybody, and they'll say, well, it's it's harming the companies that are trying to compete with them. Well. You're allowed to do that. In fact, you're supposed to do that. We want vigorous competition. I mean, we want people out there. I want all the business or I want as much of the business as I can possibly get. I'm going to do the best job I can possibly do. And, you know, when a lot of the big box stores came along, they put out of business a lot of the little small mom and pop shops. And I mean, if you own a mom and pop shop or something like that, that's that's a bummer, right? But it's also creative destruction. What consumers were saying is we're getting more consumer welfare from the big box store than we are from the little mom and pop shop. Yes, whatever that is. Right. Whether it's local bookstores, local pet shops. Well, but I mean, whatever that convenience is. And it might not be something you or I, frankly, find to be particularly convenient. Right. I don't particularly enjoy necessarily having to drive to the mall Mm -hmm. just to pick something or to drive to a further space than that shop that was on my street corner. Yeah. But- uh, and and that's totally legitimate. But if the market has shifted, if the market's not interested, then that place goes away. So it's, and, and you find this a lot in, the, in these discussions, yeah. right? Some individual, you hear this from all the time, some, uh, some individual has complained and it goes to a legislator and they go to the floor and they say, you know, uh, Bob, back in my district, yeah. this was their experience. And, you know, listen, I'm, I might be totally sympathetic with Bob, yeah. but that doesn't mean you change national uh, public policy exactly to suit the one person. You don't change, you don't change the law. This is why we that. need principles, right? Yes, this exactly. is this is why principles exist. The the other point I feel compelled to make is that there's always a place in the market for specialization. You do still have mom and pop shops these days doing really well, but odds are they're selling on Etsy, yes, or they're selling as an Amazon seller, right? Or they're selling on eBay. They're taking advantage of these technology platforms that are supposedly too big, and 
part of the consumer welfare that these big platforms are delivering is they're facilitating little mom-and-pop specialty shops to have nationwide and global customer bases. I literally, and this has happened a, a bunch to me lately. Now, so after I just talked about not listening to the individual, I'm going to give you an individual yeah, story. Okay. Uh, but have been looking for a couple of different books that are no longer in print. Mm-hmm. I, I actually can't believe how many bookstores are on Amazon that are individual. Right. I mean, and they've got names like bookstores. It's not, it's not Sally and her shelf of books at home. It, these are bookstore names. I mean, and if you look at them, I try to look some of them up. They are legitimate used bookstores across this country. I had no idea so many existed, to tell you the truth, yeah, yeah. Um, because I've been told, as many have, well, Amazon put all those bookstores out of business. Well, it turns out that's not completely true. Right. Now, they're probably more specialized, and they do have more used books, mm-hmm. and they probably have a deeper trove of specific kinds of used books. So I've seen some that are military history, et cetera. But they do exist. But regardless, it's just the market. Uh, changing because people decided it wasn't all that exciting for them to go into a bookstore anymore. I don't know why. I love going into bookstores. I can hang out there all day. But the the market decided that wasn't that big of a value. I can remember when one of my favorite dates when I was a younger young man was going to bookstores. And, you know, I mean, you know, my, my then date now wife and I liked nothing better than to spend time in bookstores, just walking the aisles and perusing the titles and seeing if you found anything interesting. So, and yeah, and, and there's still a place for that. But to this, again, to this point about um, there's still room for specialization, I don't know if it's still true. But at least as of two years ago, if you looked at the total volume of product that moved through Amazon, there was more of it that was not Amazon's own uh, products. I'm not, I'm not phrasing this properly. There was more of Amazon's traffic by third-party sellers than by Amazon itself. Amazon. <laughs> so in other words, the, the platform was facilitating more e-commerce by other sellers than by Amazon. Right. So downtown, so mm-hmm. to speak, had merely moved online. Downtown exactly. hadn't gone away. That's right. And and hence, may, they may have relocated mm-hmm. because maybe they didn't need that expense. I'm making this up, but this because I suspect most downtowns, it's not that pricey to rent. Right. But but maybe it was, and they thought, hey, we could rent the space out in the suburbs somewhere that's a lot For less a expensive. Fourth of the price, right? That's right, yeah, and yeah. I can make more money because I'm selling on a platform that is it has less friction. Yeah. Um, and hence I can do better all around, and I still have some foot traffic, just not as much. But now I have that electronically, and that I think that's a point often lost. I mean, listen, at, at some level, I'm sympathetic to the nostalgia. I'm as nostalgic as, as mm-hmm. anyone. But times do change. Times do move on. The, sa- the worst part is that we have legislators who, who get nostalgic yeah. and then want to recreate the world or hold the world as it was or as it should be in right. their minds. That's the problem. Well, this would be like, this would be like protecting the jobs of the lamplighters, yes, right? Exactly. When electricity came along, right? Or somehow protecting the horse and buggy manufacturers when automobiles came along. I mean, there's always disruption whenever there's new innovation, whenever there's change, there's always disruption. And, you know, government's got to decide which side it's on. Is it on the side of trying to preserve the status quo or is it on the side of trying to allow for lots of lots of churn and lots of innovation? And I think this is a good comparison with sort of Europe's approach toward antitrust, which is in Europe, they really do decide, you know what? We do know how many players there ought to be. <laughs> yes, yes. We know how many competitors there ought to be. And if, and if there's not enough, we will use the force of law 
to limit the size of companies and to bring new competitors in. And it is not a coincidence, therefore, that you don't see in Europe the kind of startup culture, the kind of rapid innovation in business models. It, it happens here, not there. And there's a reason for that, is that the government has a much firmer, stronger hand in this area of competition than our government does in the U.S. But tragically, there are moves afoot right now to sort of bring that same sort of European competition policy thinking to the U.S. And I'm thinking about a couple of things. I'm thinking about, first of all, the Biden administration appointee to head the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is as aggressive an antitrust person as I think I've ever seen in my lifetime. It's like there's not a merger she wouldn't oppose. There's not a big company she wouldn't break up. And it appears that the FTC is going to be extremely aggressive in the Biden administration. And you've got uh, legislation like Senator Amy Klobuchar Mm -hmm. has a bill in the Senate that would really radically change uh, antitrust law and standards in this country. And it's it's kind of crazy what it would do. And and we don't want to, you know, spend this podcast digging down into the details of the bill. But what our listeners should know is that this this longstanding successful consumer welfare standard uh, is in danger. Yes. It's in danger of falling, and it's in danger of falling both through the administrative state at the FTC and it's in danger of falling through legislation. And you know, as a conservative free market guy, one of the things that troubles me the most is that some of our elected Republican officials – in order to try to please sort of this new sort of populism on the right might actually sign on to some of that kind of legislation because they think, you know, this is a way to, you know, appease the people who are mad at big tech. It's a way to appease the people who are mad at Amazon and things like that. Right. And we, and actually we've already seen that specific to the, to the Klobuchar bill in the Senate. Uh, there's a, there's a, they, they try to say it's a different bill, but there's a stunningly similar bill in the house and it has co-sponsors as well. But in the Senate, uh, there are already uh, folks who have signed on, and and for that, by by all understanding, by all appearances, uh, if not by statements, they they're on as a way to try to attack big tech as a way to get votes. So yeah. true populism. I just right. I just rank yeah. uh, populism. Uh, uh, in fact, Senator uh, Grassley is a co-sponsor on that. Now I'm not saying that's why he's on there. He, mm. uh, in fact, by no evidence has gone down that that path per se. But uh, what I would say about Klobuchar bill at 10,000 foot is anything that people find to be convenient online today, this bill will probably make not as convenient tomorrow, Mm. if not outright get rid of. Mm. So as a very quick example, thanks since we've been talking about Amazon a lot here, I'll just continue to use Amazon and because I use it a lot for that matter. Um, So, you know, you get the little mark that says prime and, and that little tag indicates that it will, a couple things it's in the, what it means is it's in the warehouse so it can ship quickly. So mm-hmm. however you see that, uh, it's the, the shipping, it, you're not paying extra shipping, right? It's not coming from a third party. So, uh, and you, if you've uh, paid into prime and I forget exactly how much it is, 99 bucks or 199 bucks, whatever it is, you, you've already paid for that. Yeah. Right. It's going to come to you for assuming you, uh, are in the category of coming in their normal pace, which is, as you point out, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes it's a day or two, uh, you don't pay for it. Well, Marking it as prime, preferencing your own abilities online would become illegal. Mm. So I'm not sure how you would know what you had paid for at the end of the day, but you'd have to go hunt for it because you'd just get a, a big list of stuff. So imagine instead of having 
just the prime the prime products mm-hmm. pop up, you would now have a list of a hundred or two hundred. I mean, some of these categories I look in have hundreds of, yeah. of people who are selling. Yeah, you would have to sift through there to try to figure out how you how you got what you paid for at the end of the day. So absolutely absurd results. Um, and back to the question you asked uh, much earlier, and I think is right on, is what problem is even being addressed here? Um, and I think that's the that's the problem with the whole bill. I think the whole bill falls on that. And that sort of brings me to sort of like I think the final point that we would like to close on, and that is that antitrust doesn't even solve the problems that a lot of people are trying to solve right now. Uh, it, it's it's it just doesn't even address the problem. And let's talk about some of our friends on the right who are very unhappy about social media moderation decisions. Um, and I understand in many cases why they are. Uh, friends on the right are unhappy about, for instance, Amazon deciding not to carry a particular controversial book or they, or, or they carry it, but they won't allow advertising or marketing for the book and those sorts of things, right? And in, in many cases, those are decisions that I personally also would disagree with, right? But that's what people on the right are unhappy about. And they're casting about for something to address it, and they've seized on antitrust and I think we just need to make the fairly obvious point that antitrust does not address that problem. You know, I mean, forcing Facebook to sell Instagram, which is one of the very few places in this whole area that you could even see a natural cleave, right? Forcing Facebook to sell Instagram doesn't have anything to do with Facebook's content moderation decisions, right? right? right. Uh, you know, breaking I mean, Twitter's not that big, but I mean, I mean, you know, breaking Twitter up and what, what, what do you break Twitter up into? You know, here's the piece that does 70 characters. Here's yeah, the piece that no, does I mean, 140. how do you even do that? Right. You know, or like Amazon. I mean, what do, what do you do to Amazon? You, 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 well, you do the things you were talking about in the Klobuchar bill, right? You say things like you can't sell your own products. You can only sell other people's products. Just incidentally, I, I know somebody, I didn't know that Amazon literally has a line of men's dress shirts. I didn't know they did that. Oh, their own, like their own. They line. have their own line. Oh, I, I think it's called either. Amazon Basics. And somebody I know—that's his go-to white dress shirt—is the Amazon Basics dress shirt. By the way, we should know we have not been paid to no, endorse we've not, Amazon. No, no, no. <laughs> we, we've not been paid by Amazon to talk about this. Although, what, although now we might be open to right, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what I thought was comical was he said, "Okay, now it's getting real." If they're going to take away my Amazon Basics dress shirt, now, <laughs> now it's getting real. Now it's hitting the fan. That's where he was afraid that this antitrust stuff was going to hit him personally, right? But, you know, if, if you're unhappy about content moderation decisions, if you're unhappy because you suspect these, these companies are left-leaning in their politics, if you're unhappy because you think that Amazon should not have blocked advertising for that book on transgenderism or something like that, look, I mean, we get it. We understand why you're not happy about that. But antitrust does not address that problem. That's right. Well, it only addresses it in this way, to be fair. Making government a gigantic bully. Yes. Right. That's, that's really it. Yeah. And I think that is what is maybe the most odious of all of this, um, and for a bunch of reasons and whatnot. But don't we, I mean, shouldn't we expect better? Just just straight up. Shouldn't right. we expect better? Uh, but th- but that is that that is what antitrust is. And, and now back to the, what I said way early. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, I've often called the mall of the progressive movement. This is uh, for the free market. Yeah. It is a gigantic war hammer designed to break things up. And that is what it can do. And that is what they seem to want to do because somehow then they believe that scattering these pieces 
because they've been such bullies that I guess there would be a fear in the marketplace or mm. a fear amongst consumers or a fear amongst entrepreneurs that I best never go down that path because if I happen to be successful, government will come along and bust me up too. Right. That is really all it can do. And so, I, you know, listen, I, I'll say again what I said before, I find very little use for antitrust, but I find that in this situation, it is pretty darn close to disgusting that people will crow on the Senate floor about joining onto this bill or, or having been part of the bill or part of just the idea when all they're doing, they're joining on to be bullies because why can I say that so confidently? Because they have yet to show any consumer harm that is happening, actual harm happening in the marketplace. Because let's face it, for most of these things, we've been using Amazon as an example, Yeah, but you don't, there, there are plenty of these, uh, platforms where you're not paying to you, you're, you're paying nothing. There's no yeah. business transaction going on right. with, with Google for the most part. Mm-hmm. There's no business transaction going on with Facebook for the most part. I mean, I get small business might, et cetera, but an individual user, you're, you're getting it for quote free. Now we know that they're making money on the advertising side, but you, you can pick up and go. You've not lost anything when you, when you leave. And that, that to me, is how all this ties together in a negative way for the proponents of using antitrust, certainly in this space, if not generally. Yeah, it's troubling to see some of our friends who call themselves conservatives or market who say they believe in free markets essentially advocating giving government dramatically more power. Absolutely. Because that's literally what you do. That's literally what you're doing here. If you if you want to abandon the the consumer welfare standard and if you want to start saying to government, yes, you can make arbitrary decisions about how big companies are allowed to be. Uh, you are just dramatically empowering and growing government, It's spe- specifically in its ability to use force, which well, is scary. And let me point out something else. It, write down these lines. The logical conclusion of what you are saying, it ain't stopping here, folks. What's next? Is it big corn? Is it big TV? Is it big wallboard? Is it, I don't know what it is. It'll be whatever they darn well decide it is. And so what, whoever you are, whatever job you have out there, your industry could be next. And that risks your, your career, Mm -hmm. that risks more than your career is your job. It could risk your investments. It could, it risks all kinds of things, all because we have empowered government to make these, um, artificial and arbitrary decisions. Now, could they do it? Ne- could they do it now? Well, obviously, yes. I mean, just to be clear, even without the Klobuchar bill, uh, there's other antitrust laws they they could use. In fact, they've talked about using them. Yeah, it's to me, it's more that this has become a go-to solution for all the wrong reasons as yeah. we've been talking about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Bartlett, for for joining us on this topic. I think that we've done a really really good job of explaining that the consumer welfare the reasons behind the consumer welfare standard and the fact that it's it's the only non-arbitrary non-capricious way to view this topic and for our listeners out there you can find a lot more about free markets and government regulation at our website at ipi.org if you've enjoyed this podcast how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.